Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 1st, 2024. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, a new Interior Department rule expands an old one by thousands of miles, plus what individual federal employees can do to improve customer experience. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, one of the federal government's top cyber leaders is stepping down this week. Army General Paul Nakasone has led Cyber Command and the National Security Agency since 2018. One of the top things on his mind as he prepares to retire is the future of Cybercom. For more on that, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. Justin, thanks for being here. Hey, Eric. How are we doing? All right. All right. So I guess the better question is, how is Paul Nakasone doing? What has General Nakasone been saying about the future of the command he led for the last six years? Yeah, Eric, in a few words, uh, he wants to have a bold move forward at U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, General Nakasone, uh, you know, has led the command since May 2018 when it its forces actually kind of reached what's called full operational capability. And and now they're thinking about something called Cybercom 2.0 uh, for this you know, about 15-year-old command. Nakasone, uh, you know, he's stepping down uh, this week, and he briefed a small group of reporters up at Fort Meade on Tuesday. Uh, we weren't allowed to bring in any electronics, so I don't have any audio from that briefing. But what I do have are uh, notes on what uh, Nakasone talked about. One of the big things is this idea of the changes that are needed at Cyber Command to kind of position it well for the future. And Congress has actually tasked DOD with thinking hard about that uh, and, and doing a study on the responsibilities of the military services for actually providing forces to Cybercom. And that study is due to Congress on June 1st, and it's uh, well underway. And that's uh, something that Nakasone has really been thinking hard about as he uh, prepares to leave. Glad those notes weren't blacked out on your way off the campus. What is the study going to consider? Yeah, uh, Nakasone says he's just approved uh, you know, a cross-functional team to go out and start looking at some specific issues. One of those are how, do, how does Cybercom use its authorities differently? How do they do training differently? How do they think about personnel differently in the future? One of the major issues he highlighted is the rotation of military forces in and out of Cybercom. Uh, this is how it works that, you know, a, a lot of the combatant commands is forces are assigned there temporarily for a few years, and then they rotate out to another assignment. And Nakasone made the point that in the cyber domain, he thinks there needs to be a, quote, longer dwell time for the soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines who actually go and serve there. And he thinks that's because, you know, the cyber domain is complicated and it takes a long time to train and get soldiers ready for operating in cyberspace. And therefore, they should perhaps stay at the command longer is kind of where he's leading. And that's been something that's brought up, been brought up in the past when it comes to cyber command. So that's one of the things that this uh, study will be looking at is how the services kind of feed forces into cyber command and perhaps how long they stay there once they do. We're talking here with Federal News Network reporter Justin Doubleday. So six years at the helm of Cyber Command and the National Security Agency. General Nakasone has been a busy man. What else has been notable about his tenure there? 
Yeah, I think, you know, there's the other side of his uh, quote unquote dual hat leadership, and that's the National Security Agency has also seen some major changes during his tenure, including the reestablishment of a cybersecurity directorate in 2019 to be a little bit more public facing uh, for the NSA, which, of course, is still very secretive, but perhaps less so than they have been in the past. And that cybersecurity directorate has really focused on forging more partnerships with industry and issuing public cybersecurity advisories, uh, and, and that's continued over the last several years since it, it's been stood up and really accelerated. Another big thing has been the NSA's workforce. Uh, you know, it's in the middle of some pretty big changes with a lot of its older workforce uh, retiring and uh, members, uh, millennials and members of even Generation Z now making up a much larger chunk of that NSA workforce. Um, Knox only made the point that the NSA is actually hiring half of its civilian workforce over the next five years. Essentially, a new half of its civilian workforce will be replaced over the next five years. And so what they're looking at is new opportunities, new flexibilities for those younger generations. Perhaps they don't have to serve there for three or four decades straight, but they can uh, move in and out of the NSA more easily. And that's one thing that Nakasone has really put an emphasis on over the last year or so. I don't think you could bring in a notepad big enough to get his full answer on this, but what does Nakasone see as some of the major challenges in cyber going forward? Yeah, well, you know, one of them is workforce, which we've covered a lot about both on the cybercom side and the NSA side. Uh, another, unsurprisingly, is China. He, he called it the generational challenge of our time uh, when it comes to China and, and the Chinese government and what, what they're doing in cyberspace. Uh, he, he highlighted how the U.S. believes the Chinese government is behind infiltrations into the networks of U.S. critical infrastructure recently, uh, networks like power and water systems. This issue was also highlighted during a hearing that Nakasone appeared at uh, on Wednesday. Uh, before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. So this is getting a lot of attention in all quarters. Um, and then the third thing beyond China and workforce that Nakasone mentioned is artificial intelligence. He says the smartphone had been the most disruptive piece of technology in his lifetime so far, but he thinks AI and generative AI will be similar in its uh, disruptiveness. Yeah, that seems to be where the attention is in the media landscape and in cyber experts themselves. What is the NSA doing around artificial intelligence and generative AI? Yeah, last year it made some waves when it announced it was establishing an AI security center. Uh, and that's specifically focused uh, on on working with companies that work on AI that that you know develop these models uh, and it works with them to essentially protect their intellectual property from foreign theft. Nakasone says one thing he's observed is that US adversaries and competitor nations are all using US based AI products. So working with US partners who, who uh, companies who who work on those products uh, in order to identify perhaps cyber attacks that would attempt to steal that intellectual property is a major focus of the NSA's security center. And that's something that uh, I'm sure will be continue to be a major emphasis in, in the future as Nakasone steps down. I should mention uh, it's a familiar face for NSA and Cybercom folks, at least, who are replacing him, who is replacing him. Uh, Lieutenant General Timothy Hawk, he's an Air Force general, has been confirmed uh, by the Senate to replace Nakasone. And that change of ceremony, change of command ceremony, excuse me, is happening this week. 
Yeah, is that going to be the move going forward that whoever leads the NSA is also going to have to head up Cyber Command just because their missions are so intertwined? Well, this is uh, this probably deserves its own segment, the uh, the dual hat relationship uh, with the same person leading both the NSA and Cybercom has been a uh, topic of a lot of uh, think tank pieces and debate in Congress. But several years ago, uh, you know, both DOD leaders, Nakasone included in Congress, seem to at least close it for the near term by saying they think that it should continue uh, to be a dual hat relationship and that they should not split up the leadership of those organizations. And so with Lieutenant General Timothy Hawk, soon to be four star general, Lieutenant uh, General Timothy Hawk, uh, that's going to continue. He's going to continue to lead both the NSA and Cybercom. All right, we'll hold you to that and look forward to a future segment on that topic. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you, as always. All right, thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, what individual federal employees can do to improve customer experience. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. It's the oldest challenge in government and business, how to make things easier for customers. In the digital age, customer service has evolved into something more ambitious, customer experience, or CX. CX asks, among other things, how you get the idea of better service or experience down to the individual employee. Office of Personnel Management digital services expert Beth Martin gave Federal Drive host Tom Temin some ideas. What is the latest thinking? What is OPM doing these days? There's an executive order about a year ago on customer experience. It's in the president's management agenda. It's in all of their management agendas, pretty much. What's going on these days? We have two flagship activities that are undergoing. We have the OPM modernization That's uh, OPM.gov. That's also our intranet. And we even have a strategic goal speaking to that. So we are taking this very seriously, obviously. We also have another effort underway dealing with the Postal Services Health Benefits Program. And that will be a really exciting development that will finish up later this fall for the Postal Services workers and their annuitants and family members. And just review for us what the goals of the OPM CX modernization are that would be presumably for federal employees writ large. Yes. For federal uh, employees who want to choose their health benefits, to choose their retirement benefits, for people who are considering coming into federal service, who want to see what's available to them. All federal employees are our customers and all federal retirees are our customers. And anyone who's looking to have a a federal job or do business with OPM are our customers. And you mentioned intranet. It was the second phase in agencies and organizations putting their stuff out on the public internet. They said, well, Mm -hmm. we could do this internally also. But since all of this, there's another development called artificial intelligence. Is that coming into this idea of understanding what a person is looking for and therefore revving up the intranet? such that it can give more detailed information to that person, even though it may not be on a formal website. Does that make sense? Yes. Are you thinking on the public side or on the intranet side? Well, intranet side. Well, there is an effort underway right now. It's a pilot project, and uh, another colleague is heading that up. It's a joint effort with the Air Force. 
So that is very exciting because that will be helping HR personnel. And so I, I think we'll, when we have more to share about that, that will be really exciting that we can um, talk more about that and how it can help streamline efforts. Because if you look at the OPM's website, it is extensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, even just mm-hmm. as coming in from the public, as I do, just to mm-hmm. see what do they exactly say about this day or that day type of thing. Right. And there's always documents linked, and they in turn link to other documents. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you get to the statutes. I mean, it's pretty deep what you mm-hmm. offer, but it's not all that easy to navigate or it might take a lot of time. I guess is one of the gambits you're thinking of such that a natural language query could find all of those documents, assemble them for a person, and then maybe provide an answer that's generated. It would be just for that question, but it wouldn't necessarily be a page on an internet. Can we steal that idea, Tom? That's a great (laughs) idea. (laughs) It's not original. I just heard it from somebody else. But well, tell us what you do plan right now. I mean, what's the status of of your own modernization? I think in terms of modernizing it, you know, going to the cloud, obviously, we're working hard on that to modernize legacy systems. And I don't want to go too deep into that because that is not my area of expertise. I am just sharing what I am aware of. We want to do better by our customers. And so we're working hard to understand what customers need so that we can provide that in a more streamlined manner. As AI matures and access to it becomes more commonplace, you know, we obviously need to wait for those guardrails for AI. And what you mentioned would be very interesting. And there's a long-term impact, which came about, you know, with search engines not too recently, where they talked about, I need everything on this topic. And the AI scrapes from those websites, and then you lose traffic on those websites. So I think those are down the road kinds of concerns. Who is the authoritative source of that information? Because the search engines can get it wrong. Yes, indeed they can. We've all been down (laughs) those rabbit holes. We're speaking with Beth Martin. She's digital services expert and customer experience designer at OPM. And tell us about the ways that you are making sure you understand what it is. I mean, it's hard to say the customer because with a workforce Mm -hmm. of a couple of million, everybody's unique, literally. Right and has unique situations. So what's your best strategy for determining, you know, what the journey map should look like and all of these things when you have 2 million people? Or if you're, you know, a large business, you might have 20 million or 200 million. That's a really good question. The first thing we need to do is to understand what our agency mission is, you know, going back to basics and making sure that we are delivering on what we're supposed to be doing. Government's mandate is to serve. So we need to serve. And in order to do that, we need to know what our mission is. And everything that we do needs to be tied to that mission. And we have strategic plans with strategic goals and objectives. And we need to be aware of those so that we are delivering on those. In the case of OPM, as with any other agency, once we understand that perspective, That will be the North Star to help orient who do we serve, who are the primary people who need these services. And we need to do some research. We need to do user research. We need to do user interviews and really get a very good understanding of the target audience that we are trying to reach out to and make sure that we are delivering what they need. We are delivering the top services. There are many things that agencies do, but we need to do the things that 
we are charged to do well and stay in our lane. So the idea then behind this is CX has to be very specific to the agency, in the case of federal agencies, and there's no one way to do it that fits everybody. Right, because we're, we're all serving different audiences, and they will have different needs. You might have one agency who is serving people who have English language barrier, so that customer service need will be different than somebody who is providing internal services. So we really need to understand who our users are and their needs. And you mentioned something else, too, that uh, you serve individual federal employees, but really OPM also serves other agencies in official capacity, not an individual capacity. And how does that complicate the CX journey? Well, agencies are people, too. There are people who have those needs. So, again, we need to make sure that we are serving up what that agency is connecting with us for what we deliver. And tell us more about the Postal Service effort. It's in their health care area. Is it something yes. that could maybe translate later on to government-wide for OPM? Because everybody does health care, and everybody obtains it one way or another. Yes, it's a very complex process. When I first joined OPM about 18 months ago, I was involved in a discovery effort where we were just looking at one aspect of several different processes for this larger effort of delivering service. And I really grew to appreciate it. I have family members who are involved in different aspects of the healthcare system. And I've worked at Health and Human Services and FDA. So I I had some appreciation of what's involved, but I had no clear understanding of the complexity of just this one aspect of it. So in this one particular case, the effort was for insurance carriers to offer up the three different health plans that they wanted to do that. And that is a contract, a bid process. And getting that information into a portal, and then OPM takes that and works that, communicates with the health insurance company about negotiating, and then they award the contract. One, I learned how that process went. And two, there were so many people involved in so many decisions. It really gives you an appreciation for how complex it is. And just mapping that whole journey was an astounding process. And doing that again for five or six more other major processes and getting all of those steps mapped and then looking at how can we streamline this? How can we make it easy for us? How can we make it easy for the insurance companies to come in and and offer this? And by extension, how can we make this a better process for everybody involved? Because our customers in this case are the insurance companies wanting to do business with us, which will ultimately help us give better service to the people who want the insurance plans. Sure. So in trying to get to a better CX, you can also Mm -hmm. get to a better process. Exactly. Beth Martin is a digital services expert and customer experience designer at the Office of Personnel Management. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, the CIA doesn't just collect data. It also collects art. But first, a new Interior Department rule expands an old one by thousands of miles. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. For many years, the Interior Department has used a simple procedure to do assessments of environmental damage. It concerns hazardous materials released to the Great Lakes and a few other coastal locations. Now, Interior proposes to greatly expand the size of the cases covered by the simple procedure and to apply it everywhere. Attorney Brian Farachi O'Malley of the Nossaman Law Firm joined Tom Temin earlier to tell us what that means. This is kind of an arcane thing, but since the Interior Department wants to do it everywhere, there's the environment in the country, which is everywhere. I guess we ought to know what it is they're planning to do here. Tell us about the rule and how it works now. Absolutely, Tom. So what we're talking about here are Natural Resource Damage Assessments and Restoration, or NRDAR. And this is a process by which government agencies, the federal trustees, assess and restore natural resources that are injured as a result, like you said, of hazardous substances or oil getting into the environment and damaging the public's resources. So the trustees, the government agencies, assess what was the damage. They work with potentially responsible parties in industry, whoever caused the damage to recoup funds for that, and then they go out and conduct restoration. And as you noted, type A, the type A rule is what we're talking about here. There are two different ways that the government goes about assessing what happened, what were the damages, and who do we need to go after. And this type A rule, the proposed rule was released about two weeks ago now, back on January 5th, and a comment period open until March 5th. It's a way of saying, how can we have a simplified process to get from there was a spill to putting restoration on the ground? There are these two, the type A and the type B. Type B is very case-specific. It's very complicated, takes a long time. You go and do a bunch of studies. Type A has always been meant to be the simplified version, but it hasn't been used in maybe even decades because of how outdated the rule and the models were. So that's what the government's trying to do. And the earlier type A was for relatively small cases, I think $100,000 or less. Now they want it to be up to $5 million? Yes. So the way that type A was initially meant to be was very narrow. So like you said, only cases for $100,000 or less of damages, which as an aside, Tom, is basically no NRD cases anymore. The smallest case that really gets moved through, maybe you're talking about four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in damages. And you mentioned in the lead, it was only really applicable to two areas, the Great Lakes and then coastal and marine environments. And you had to use this model that was actually written into the regulations. All the inputs were there. So that was nineteen ninety seven. You know, we were still using floppy disks at the time in the government to run these models. And my understanding is the government can't even like we don't have the computers anymore that are working to run the particular model. So they are expanding who can use type A. But I would think of that as just shifting some things over from type B. So if you had a case that was, say, a million dollars damages, even if you could theoretically model it and do it real quick, you didn't have the opportunity. You couldn't use that type A rule. You had to go the type B site specific take a long time, do a bunch of studies way. So that's where I think the government is trying to go and interior with with opening type A up. So this would apply to, say, someone, say, a tanker truck full of heavy crude oil or something or some terrible chemicals dumps over and pollutes a local lake somewhere. This would apply because it's only a truckload. But it would not apply, say, to what happened in 
East Palestine, where there could be hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage. They don't even know yet. I think it's still smoldering over there. Definitely. This is meant for cases, you know, even with the new proposed cap of up to $3 million generally or $5 million for certain discrete releases. It's $5 million for a case, like you mentioned, like East Palestine, some larger spill or release of chemicals is a lot. So you are going to be able to use this on more, maybe we say run-of-the-mill cases, not the ones that are going to, you know, the East Palestine, the Exxon Valdez, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Those things are still going to go through the Type B site-specific process. We're speaking with Brian Farashi O'Malley. He's a partner at the law firm Nassiman. And basically is the Type A designed for rapid settlement, that is, to avoid going to court and having expensive studies done by both, I guess it's expensive for the parties involved, the spiller, but also the government wants to settle it fast too, I imagine. You make some good points. I'm smiling because rapid is an interesting term for the way that the government works sometimes, Tom. I know you know this. It is meant to be a more streamlined, more efficient way because, as you noted, the longer these take from the industry side, that costs more money and more time until you get finality on your project. But it's the same issues that plague the government here. The longer it takes to do a project, to go through and recoup what the public lost, the fewer cases you can do. The more time you're spent on the administrative side, the less time resources are out there not being restored to their baseline. So it should provide a way. I don't think it will be rapid, but it should be faster than it currently is because these cases can take years, Tom, and do take years. And so if you can move from decades to just years, that's beneficial on both sides of the equation. And you mentioned there's a algorithm or some kind of a model that runs such that you can apply the inputs from what you've measured or what you've seen in a given site, run it through this program, and it'll give some kind of a settlement figure. I'm probably oversimplifying. So were you saying there the algorithm itself is probably out of date and it was developed in a way that it's not useful in modern systems? Absolutely, Tom. The current type A that's out there in the regulations right now, last revised in 1997, is a static equation. It's written into the regulations. You must use that particular equation and you can't deviate from it. We have learned plenty in the last 30 odd years of NRD cases. You can't use any of that knowledge. You have to use the old model. So the new rule takes away that model and basically says, all right, we're going to use models that are well accepted in the industry. It gives some examples, things called a habitat equivalency analysis, HIA, or resource equivalency analysis, RIA. They're models that have been developed over decades now that help estimate the damages rather than having to go out and do all of the individual studies. So models like that, the new rule is saying you can use those since we understand them and you know we have a lot of experience or potentially open up for other models in the future that we can develop. And that's a key benefit, I think, of the proposed rule is this idea that it will be flexible. It will be able to be something that we're not going to be fixed in time in 2024 and have to do this again in 10 years when the rule doesn't make any sense anymore. But yeah, it's meant to help find a way to use models to get to that answer quicker. And do the modern models have some flexibility? That is to say, if something, I keep using the spill example, but that's usually what happens. If the spill is in a remote area that affects just a small contained water body versus 
the same amount of spill of the same material, but in a place where there's a public water supply, lots of homes nearby, or whatever, that type of thing. The modern models can take into account those variables to re- arrive at what a settlement might be worth. Yeah, I mean, Tom, there are a lot of smart economists at Interior who have spent a lot of time developing these type of models. And I think as a lawyer and a recovering scientist, what I would say is that the more details, the more different variables you have to add in, the harder it gets to make the model work perfectly. And that's why these are made for more cases where it's, again, I don't want to say run of the mill because these are all instances where something bad happens and it does impact the public. But you're operating in a sense where, all right, we generally understand if it's this type of spill, we've done a bunch of these types of spills. We have a clear understanding of the variables and what's going on. We can use those models quickly and easily to process something. Well, in your estimation, is industry going to say, oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever to come along? Or are they likely to comment, yes, but maybe tweak it here and there? I think it's the latter. I think industry has been asking for a long time for Interior to come up with ways to clarify and speed up the process. There are many opportunities where you sit there from the industry perspective and you say, I think we understand what's going on here. Let's move on. We want to be done, and you want to get restoration on the ground. Brian Ferracio Malley is a partner at Nossiman. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, the CIA doesn't just collect data. It also collects art. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. You might not think of the CIA as concerned with art or what it calls the beauty and intelligence, but the agency, in fact, has an extensive art collection dating back to the late 1960s and even a few artists working there. One of them, Deborah Dismuke, joined Federal Drive host Tom Temin to talk about her work. Let's point out you are retired from the CIA now, so are you pursuing art as a full-time type of occupation? I am. All right. Yes. Tell us, what is your specialty? What, what, uh, how would you characterize your approach to art? I do a lot of uh, portraits. I use oils when I'm doing my work. When, when I joined the agency, I joined the agency after I graduated from college. And I joined in 1987 as an information specialist. Right. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you about because – your work involved visual presentations, correct? Absolutely, yes. Right, so you had the job of converting information, data, and so forth into something that could be digested visually. Absolutely, yes. I design and produce finished visual information for supporting our analysts who are working on critical national security issues. And... Throughout my time uh, doing graphics uh, for the agency mission, I was given opportunity to do more stuff, such as drawings, and which led me to a whole host of things. I was given opportunity to do portrait drawings of uh, George Methley and a former director, John McCone. And I created these two pieces in order to pay tribute to two former distinguished CIA officers. 
And over time, my unique artistic skills were noted by those I work with. Yeah, I was going to say, because it must have been the visual presentations you did probably had a little pizzazz in them. And somehow they knew you could do this more than, I mean, just on that point, the visual presentation of data or material such that it's digestible by the agents that, as you say, were working on national security issues, that's something of an art in itself, isn't it? Because you want, want it to be compelling and understandable, but yet also accurate for them. Absolutely. Yes. And what yes. were the media in which this was done? I imagine it, it evolved since you joined in the late 80s until when you retired because of all, all the electronic means that came in. We use various graphic packages that most graphic designer uses. Um, Adobe is one of them, and there's uh, quite a few, yes. And throughout all this time, though, you pursued the oil painting work that you had been trained for in college as yes. on the side. Yes, that opportunity um, presented itself. I started out doing a smaller painting for Mr. Panetta, uh, former director Leon Panetta. So uh, I did a snow, a uh, snowy Langley painting for Mr. Panetta for his official holiday card. And Mr. Panetta was very pleased with it. And uh, he pulled me to the side. He said, one day you're going to be famous. Wow. And I guess in a <laughs> sense you are. And, you know, I'm looking at a couple of the paintings that the CIA features. One is of Bill Donovan, a long ago operator there, I think even before the formation officially of the CIA as a you know federal agency in the aftermath of World War II. And then there's also a painting of uh, photorealistic, that's what I would call it, of the World War II Navajo code talkers. Yes. So widely differing subjects. What What's your inspiration for saying, I'd like to paint this? So my inspiration comes from um, movies, storytelling on History Channel, things like that. So I'm, in, I'm inspired by the history behind the storytelling. And I myself would like to, I do commission work for others, but these pieces would be for me, that I like to start my own personal collection. I'm inspired by, you know, the latest trends, things that are happening here in our community or organization. And also I visit galleries too that also gives me inspiration to do more, to give me more inspiration to, to paint and look for content that's different. You know? Sure. And just getting back to that one of the Navajo code talkers, that was from a photograph, but there was yes. a lot of research you had to do to make sure the colors, because it was a black and white picture, were accurate. Yes. But beyond just copying it in color, do you feel you bring something to it to enliven the photograph so that as a painting, it's really a work of art and not just a copy of a photograph? Correct. You know, I like the story behind it about these, you know, two cousins, but there was a lot of research, uh, not just the photograph itself, but also the color. As an artist, you want to um, make sure that the clothing that they're wearing is close to the color of what the Marines wore. So I had to go online and research 
what the color of that jacket that they were wearing, what was the atmosphere like, was it sunny, was it hazy, cloudy during that day, and then also capturing the skin color of the Navajo cold talkers. So I have a book, what what you call a color recipe, that give you suggestion of different colors to use uh, for different people of color, different races. So I, I want to make sure I got the right green for the hat, the, the equipment. Uh, I want it to look like metal. So I want to make sure that I use appropriate colors to indicate that it is metal. So it, it was a lot of uh, research, not just, you know, painting it out. But I want to make sure that the colors are accurate to make it realistic and believable. And do you sketch the outlines of it first, say in charcoal or pencil, or do you go right to paint on canvas? Yes. So I practice what the old masters do. So I will prep my canvas by using burnt sienna, kind of give it that uh, sienna wash, and then go in and pencil it in lightly. And then with that, I use my brush to identify my lights and darks, adding tone of values and and making sure that the perspective and the form is, you know, okay. So normally something like that might take maybe four days just to draw it out, grid it out. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So this is not something you sit down one evening and then hang it up the next day. Oh, no. (laughs) No, because sometimes uh, if I don't get it right, I may use turpentine to wipe it out and start again. And um, if it's if the proportion is off, I will have that handy rag brush to wipe it out and uh, start again. And there's another painting, I think that's one of the ones in the CIA collection of a moment during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There are operators hunched over machinery and communications gear. Tell us about that painting. So that painting came along when I had an opportunity um, once my management saw uh, the type of work that I was doing uh, outside of the the mission graphics. I had an opportunity uh, to do my first commission piece. And so this was during the time, during the uh, Cold War, the missile crisis, I was working with a group of analysts. Uh, They did have a photograph. It wasn't very clear. It it was not a crisp photo where some of the details that I really needed for information. So I started off with a basic photograph and working with the analysts, we started putting more elements in the painting to tell the story. Deborah Dismuke is an artist and retired CIA officer. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The General Services Administration's third attempt to modernize the catalog management system running on its Advantage program seems to have finally hit the right mark. GSA is expanding the number of users of the new FAS catalog platform after a successful test run over the last year. Mike Shepard is the director of the Catalog Management Office in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. He tells executive editor Jason Miller about why industry sellers and agency buyers will see a stark change when using the FCP 
from the previous catalog management system under GSA Advantage. It's going to bring in some some really new key enhancements that are going to benefit both our suppliers as well as uh, our acquisition workforce and, and customers on the Advantage side. As I said, it's an intuitive web-based application. It's going to be a stark contrast right out of the gate. When you log in FCP, you will quickly realize this is very different from that desktop SIP application. But really, it's more than that. It's a capability that's going to be integrated with EMOD in such a way where we're going to be able to capture catalog information during the mod process. So what this means for our suppliers is we're going to be able to automate publishing the GSA Advantage, and we're going to speed up that time to get catalog changes down to the Advantage platform. We know that to be a long-standing pain point for our supplier community, and uh, I, uh, I'm super excited to be delivering a tool that's going to be able to mitigate that, that long-standing pain point. I can remember the excitement when GSA announced that they would automate the e-mod and e-offer process. So this seems to be part of that. This is not the first time GSA tried to do this. So I want to definitely get into the enhancements and really talk about what's going to be different. But walk us through the story about how last time you tried to do this, it didn't go so well. And what did you learn from that? How long ago did you try this previously? This has been tried at least two other times, most recently with the FPT project formatted product tool. We are grateful in some respects to have that history because it really has informed some of the choices we've made out of the gate here with this new catalog effort. One big difference between the legacy FPT program and what we're doing now is I am here as the director of the catalog management program at GSA. This is no small thing. What that should signal to to all of our stakeholders is catalog management matters. Coming up with more efficient, cleaner ways to process catalog information and then improving the advantage experience on the front end for our customers. It matters enough where we're going to establish a catalog management office to do that work. And let me jump in real quick. Previously, was it other duties as assigned? Correct. FPT was a, a, a project. It's the first time, to my, to my knowledge, that we've had a dedicated cadre of folks who are dedicated to catalog. We have a singular mission, and that is to approve catalog management across FAST, across GSA. And I'm excited about uh, FCP because this is a, a big, important step in that process. One of the big differences you mentioned during your panel at ELC 2023 is you really took a different perspective. Maybe previously it was technology first. This was people and process first. Walk me through the development, and, and, and this started a year ago. This started three years ago. Walk me through that process to get to where you are today at the pilot, and then we'll jump into the pilot. I've been involved in Catalog now for, for over three years, so it's been a long journey to get here. Uh, and one of the conscious choices that GSA leadership made was to make sure the catalog management office was not just technologists. What we have in the CMO is a mix. We have technologists, we have big brain data scientists and IT experts, but we also have a division within our program that is focused on the business problems that we're tasked to solve. So we have a business requirements division. It's actually led by the former MAS director out of Region 2 New York. And that group of folks is really a, a collection of folks who, who lived in the business, who were contracting officers, contract specialists, procurement analysts, folks who have lived the problems that we are now endeavoring to solve through the FCP and other applications. So we're in the pilot stage now. Let's talk about what that looks like. How'd you kind of figure out what those friction points are? How'd you start to mitigate them? Yep. Uh, the pilot is, is, is exactly what it sounds like. You're, you're beginning. How many people are using the pilot? How many? Yep. Is it contracting officers first and industry second or industry first and the contract or both the same? Yep. Give, me, give me a sense so, of the pilot. So, so to that first question, one of the choices we've made is to make this a true shared use application. 
And, and this is a, a big change, I mind you. Historically, GSA contracting officers and contract contract specialists have used their own suite of systems and followed their own set of business process flows within those systems as our uh, contracting uh, supplier community. So historically, these have been discrete applications. We've brought that together into a shared, integrated workflow. And this is a huge deal, right? This allows us to work through problem areas, challenges along the way. The kicker to this is that we've also applied that same unified look and feel for our help desk. So our VSC, our Vendor Support Center, is also able to see the same info in the same real time and step in and troubleshoot and triage as they go about. To the question about where we are with the pilot, we are currently 32 contractors into the pilot. So this is a very small number, and that was really intentional on our part. We wanted to test this application with a small group to make sure that the system worked well. So far, with that limited pilot, we have had really favorable early user testimonials and feedback. We are actively surveying these users. We are certainly learning a lot from these user, this user community, things that are working well, things that are working less well. Uh, we are seeing in the early pilot that we, out of the gate, are seeing some of those efficiencies from a cycle time perspective. So this is a known chronic pain point for our users. It just takes too darn long to make a change, add a product, delete a product, issue an EPA, issue a, a TPR, a temporary price reduction. We are seeing out of the gate that it takes substantially less time to process these actions through FCP as compared to the, the legacy legacy work, workflow. So we're excited about that because what that means for our supplier community in terms of real benefit is they're going to have better control over how their catalogs are represented on GSA Advantage. And when they need to make a change to deliver for their customers, we have a system that enables that change. You know, I'm going to ask you the follow-up. When you say significant amount of less time, do you have any data you can share? On average, 10%, 40%, 99%. I'm going to hedge a little bit on that. I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but I I will say one specific example of efficiency gained is in the delete modification space. So one of the enhancements that we are particularly proud of here in the early going with FCP is that deletions are happening almost instantaneously within a day or two of submitting a delete modification. That delete action is memorialized on the Advantage platform. That's a big deal. That's lo- a big how deal. How long did it take under uh, the SIP, it, it roughly? W- it, w- it was greater than 10 days to, to be able to process to delete, delete actions in, because in the legacy Because that causes pipeline. big problems. Absolutely. I just bought something that was supposed to be Absolutely. deleted. It's no longer there. Yeah. And, yep. and frankly, we are seeing it across different types of mod actions, so ads, EPAs. We're, we're also seeing improvements there. Again, I'm going to be, I'm going to hedge a little bit in terms of the time box, but so far so good in terms of what we've seen from our well, pilot still users. still the pilot. We get it. It's only 32 contractors, so we get it, but, yep. but that, I think that's, the delete one is a great example. Yep. To delete it within a day or two yep. versus 10. Yep. I mean, Absolutely. it'd be great to do it within minutes. But, Absolutely. But it's that's, a game changer. That's, that's on the horizon. That's on yep. the horizon. We have 32 pilots right now in the contract. What's your plan? Do you add more pilots in six months? Do you ha- plan to expand this to from 32 to 1,000? Where, where do you see this going over the course of the next 
you know, six, nine months. This fiscal year, fiscal year 24, we will be continuing to onboard new users. We're going to scale, scale up about 5x, so to about 150 new users onboarding in this next tranche. From there, in January, we're going to plan to bring in more and continue to bring in a few hundred per month through the end of fiscal year 24. What that means for us in terms of our target as a program is that we're going to move the majority of Advantage catalogs into this new platform by the end of, of the fiscal year so that users can benefit from these new features and so GSA can ensure that catalogs are compliant and competitive across the board. In addition to user onboarding, though, we are also pivoting into the service space. So we now today have a capability for products, but the next frontier for us is developing an analog for services. How can we make it easier for suppliers to submit labor categories and rates? So as part of this year ahead, we are targeting a limited pilot for services, uh, an MVP, much like the MVP we have for products today, by the end of the FY. Mike Shepard is the director of the Catalog Management Office in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, speaking there with Federal News Network Executive Editor Jason Miller. You can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin.